And today we're going to be talking about a familiar parable. This is found in, in Matthew's gospel as well as Luke, but we're going to look at the Luke uh, version. You can turn to Luke 14. We're going to go there in a few minutes. But before we do, um, I want to actually make an introduction to you um, to help lead us in. So if you'll go ahead and throw that first picture up, I want you to introduce. I want to introduce to you Papa. This is my grandpa. Uh, oh, sorry, Brittany didn't know I was putting Papa up on the screen. Papa went to be with Jesus three years ago, um, but Papa is sort of the patriarch of our family. And I want to tell you one of the things that made Papa really special is that Papa. Amongst many other things, he was the town fix-it man. It's like in our little hometown of, of 1,800 people, if you had something broke, if your chainsaw blade was dull, if you needed a new uh, hunting knife made with a deer antler handle, like he was the guy. He, uh, he was forced into early retirement from the coal mine, which was his career. And so he sort of reinvented himself and uh, spent most of the years that I knew him uh, at, like I said, a sort of the town, the town fix-it man. But one of the things that was only for family and those adopted into our family, because Grandma's house was kind of open to everybody, was when Papa decided that we were going to have a fish fry. He was an avid fisherman, an avid hunterman, the sort of the consummate outdoorsman. And every so often, you could never quite. There was not a regular rhythm to it. And and one thing you have to know about Papa is you don't get Papo to do anything on your schedule. It happens on his schedule, or as Grandma said, when the Spirit moves him. And you don't try to get him to do it before that time. But ever so once in a while, the Spirit would move him that he had enough uh, of, of his regular catch stocked up in the freezer, and he had been down to Sam's and bought all the ingredients and done all the preparations that he would call up everybody in the family and say, hey, I'm going to fry fish this Saturday why don't you come over such and such time? Well, it maybe, you know, this is like once or twice a year. This is not a real common thing. But what I want to tell you about this story is that when Papa would call and say, it's time for a fish fry, everybody in the family would show up because it was special. And it was special not just because, I mean, he, he was a great Cook. He actually bought a commercial fryer. He had a whole setup in his garage, and he had his certain cornmeal mix. You know, everything was very precise, very prepared, and it was great quality. It was be bluegill or crappie or catfish. It would be a variety of things. But the reason that it was special was not because it was necessarily the best fish you could get. There might be places you could get similar things. But there were two key things. One was you knew the preparation that went into the meal. You knew that, and, and we had other similar things. You know, I mentioned him uh, making knives. In our family, we have a thing. If you have a knife, you want to, you know, check and see, is this knife sharp? There's a whole nother level called Papa Sharp. He was such a skilled uh, metals person that, you know, it, it, it's, a, it's, it, it's a different level. There's sharp and there's Papa Sharp. Well, it's sort of the same thing with the fish, is Papa's way, nobody could quite duplicate it. It was, it was special. It was intentional. It was precise. It was prepared. But the other thing that I want to focus on is that when he gave that invitation, hey, come, come up on Saturday, we're going to have fish, 
our response to that invitation was different because of who the invitation was coming from, right? It, it wasn't just the fish. It wasn't just because it was a, a free meal or, or whatever. It was the relationship that we had. And so what I'm, what I'm trying to say is any number of us might have other things going on, might have other opportunities, you know, and we have a big family. I, I'm one of about, uh, I think, 12 I'm the third oldest of 12 grandkids, and then there's an additional eight or ten great-grandkids, and I think now one or two great-great. You know, we, we, it's, it's, that's a, it's a lot of people. Um, but the relationship we had made it to where, you know, if, if you called me up and said, I'm having fish fry, I might come. I, I might, you know, if I'm available, that sounds good. I know Antonio. He, you know. But if a stranger said it to me, you know, it's like, and, and I would say it this way, you know, if you get a polite invitation, you give a polite response. But you might say, you know, I've got something else going on. I don't really know that person. It might be awkward. But when family calls, when those people that you're close with, that you have deep, intimate relationship call, you respond. And, and you, you accept that invitation. Well, you may have already figured out there's a direct parallel here to the story that we're going to look at in Luke 14. And then the message version, this story is called a dinner party. It's the parable of a dinner party. And let's go ahead. We're going to start reading in verse 15. These will be on the screen for you to follow along. Now, there's a whole section before this that I would encourage you to go back and read uh, at some point, going all the way back to verse 7, where he tells a story which is probably familiar about inviting the misfits and the whole story about, you know, coming to the to a, a, another party that he describes and not taking the place at the head of the table, but, you know, the first will be last, the last will be first. That so, so I just want you to have that sort of in the back of your mind because he starts this by saying, and that triggered a response from one of the guests. So, so just taking you back, go read that more later. There's good stuff there. That triggered a response from one of the guests. How fortunate the one who gets to eat dinner in God's kingdom. Jesus followed up. Yes, for there was once a man who threw a great dinner party and invited many. And when it was time for dinner, he sent out his servant to the invited guests, saying, Come on in, the food is on the table. Then they all began to beg off, or, or we would say in our vernacular, make excuses. One after another, making excuses, the first said, I bought a piece of property and need to look it over. Send my regrets. Another said, I just bought five teams of oxen. I really need to check them out. Send my regrets. And yet another said, I just got married and need to get home to my wife. Now, we're, let's pause there before we finish this passage. It's also important that we understand in this cultural context of when this story was told, those were actually like legitimate excuses. They would have been culturally accepted as like, yeah, if you, if they said that to you, oh, that makes sense. You know, the guy says, I just got married. You actually were to take time off of work and spend the first year with your wife. And so it would have been a legitimate excuse, right? So just, just keep that uh, in the back of your mind. Going on verse 21, the servant went back and told the master what had happened. He was outraged and told the servant, quickly, get out into the city streets and alleys, collect all who look like they need a square meal, all the misfits and homeless 
and down and out that you can lay your hands on and bring them here. So the servant went and reported back, Master, I did what you commanded, and there's still room. The master said, Then go out to the country roads. Find whoever you can find. Drag them in. I want my house full. Let me tell you, not one of those originally invited is going to get as much as a bite at my dinner party. Jesus, would you come this morning and just illuminate your word by the power of your spirit? Would you come and teach us? Would you use me as a as a conduit to bring forth your words of life? We need you, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. So if we look at this story of the dinner party, there's a few things that I want to highlight. Now, one of the things that I want to say more in general is that parables, as we've been talking for the last number of weeks, first of all, are entirely unique to Jesus. There's no other place or person or context where you'll find parables. That, That strictly describes these type of stories that Jesus told to illustrate the kingdom. But the other thing is there can be this temptation to think of the parables simply as metaphors for some principle. And we could go through them and try to find the parallels and, you know, say, well, you know, I, I think this actually means this. And, and that can leave you wondering, well, why didn't Jesus just say it? Well, we know that he often taught in stories. I love the way Charlie highlighted that last week and when she shared about how, you know, herself feeling self-conscious originally about telling stories and then realizing Jesus often taught in stories. But I don't think Jesus is just using a metaphor uh, to sort of have a symbolic meaning for some basic truth. I think there's like an overarching picture that these parables are about Jesus. They're about our relationship with him. In other words, there's a direction that he's taking us through these stories. And yes, there are things that we can pull out. There are our meanings and things that we can mine out of the symbolism and the metaphors. But the overarching direction is that he's trying to direct us towards his kingdom. He says that his kingdom is a mystery and only the Father can reveal. And so he's trying to build bridges. He's trying to give us access to enter into and begin to understand what the kingdom looks like. Well, I am going to draw out some parallels for you that I think we see in this particular parable, but with all of that in mind. The first is that Jesus has prepared a kingdom table, and he invites you to come and dine. Jesus has prepared a kingdom table. He invites you to come and dine. Just as we read in that story, and even thinking back to the fish fry, We need to realize that our choice to respond is based on the relationship with the one who's given the invitation. And so if Jesus is the one who has prepared the table and sent out the invitation, may we not be like those in this story who have excuses. Now, I'm not talking about, uh, don't misunderstand this as a parallel for, for coming to church or all the different things that we need to do to check the boxes to be good Christian people. I'm talking about the kingdom. 
I'm talking about when Jesus came and, and made it possible for us to enter into an intimate, ongoing, dynamic relationship with him as a person that can be known and wants to know us. May we not make excuses for why we're not coming to the table and taking hold of what he has made available to us. Because it should be based out of the relationship we have. So in other words, when Jesus sends the invitation, let, let's make it almost silly, right? So if Jesus were physically manifest in the flesh and walked through the back door and started passing out flyers, say, I'm having a, a, a lunch gathering after church today. I want you all to come over to my place. Now, now that's exaggerated and silly, right? Because he, we know that he's not currently here in the flesh. But if you can just imagine with me, is there anyone here that if you if you saw him and really really knew that it was him, he was really here as he once was and as he will be again, would you have excuses? Would you have more important things that you need to do? Or would you be willing to clear everything away to say, hey, I got the invitation to go to Jesus' house. I'm going to go have lunch with Jesus and all the others that he has invited. Because it's based out of the relationship. The second thing, following right along with that, is that truth, that access to the kingdom is found in relationship. If your life doesn't bear the fruit of the kingdom, the answer is not to try harder. It's to know him more. Depth and intimacy of relationship with Jesus through the power of the Holy Spirit is the path to the kingdom. To the, the, now, I, I know sometimes we get in trouble when we use this word power because it has been misconstrued by culture and, and maybe conjures up images of, you know, greedy CEOs in a, in a tall tower somewhere or something, you know, or, or, a, or a corrupt politician, you know, working the angles. And do, We're talking about kingdom power. And Wimber used to say in the early days, the power is in his presence. So again, we love to tell stories, right? And so if we would go back, and I'd encourage you, I've told you this before, there's a lot of this is documented on, on YouTube. But if you would watch or even talk to those that were there or read the accounts of some of the things that happened, uh, honestly, at all different places throughout church history, but for us especially, our our heritage in the early days of the vineyard movement, the way that the Spirit moved in great power, the way uh, that, that, that worship just, just carried on, the way that dramatic healings happened. And, and the, we're not like removed from these things, but I'm saying there was a season where there was a greater level of power. And what Wimber was trying to emphasize was this thing that is happening that God is doing, and, and I just can't stop emphasizing, he's still in the business of doing these things, right? I'm not, it's not just a history lesson, but there's things we can learn. The thing that God is doing is not because he, Wimber, or the group of people uh, have found a better program, or are more clever, or are better, more polished speakers the power was found because they turned their attention to the presence of God. They entered into intimate worship. 
they directed their adoration, their focus to lifting up Jesus. And in the midst of his presence, there is power. Now, you can take that and think, okay, well then, we just need to worship all the time. I would encourage us, we probably need to worship more. But presence is not only found corporately when we gather to worship. I think there is something unique and special about the way that he intersects us when we worship corporately, when we set our stuff aside and say, Jesus, you're Lord. Jesus, I love you. Jesus, I need you. Jesus, you're more than anything else that I could want. There's power in that. But I hope... And I pray, even for myself, that that's not something that we experience here on Sunday morning and then don't the next day. I hope that we're cultivating a lifestyle of presence, a lifestyle of worship. Because I have found there are things that I bump into in my life where I need the power of the kingdom of God to address or make it through whatever that thing is that's in front of me. And I have found time and time again that when I try to just widen my stance and, you know, I I used to play football, right? So it's like uh, I was a linebacker. It's like that's not the way to approach my problems. Now, But I can do that. That can be my default. I'm strong. I got some things figured out. I'm just going to put my nose to the grindstone and I'm going to make it through. I have found... When I don't take that position, but I simply turn and tune into Jesus. Jesus, I don't like this. I I don't like this situation. I don't like, maybe I don't like this person, whatever it is. I'm uncomfortable with this. I don't like it. I don't know what to do. But Jesus, I thank you that you're here with me, that you're in it. And, and, and I'm illustrating something here, but in the moment, I often don't even speak. I, I have learned and developed a practice of just turning my heart towards Jesus. And for me, often what that looks like is just assuming a worshipful position and closing my eyes and just waiting. Not thinking thoughts and trying to pray prayers, but allowing my heart to turn and sort of tune in to the reality of Jesus. And I can tell you, friends, he has never not met me in that place. I have sometimes left that place too quick, but he has never, I have never come to him and tried to turn my attention toward him and found him not there. I have always found him present and and almost always tangibly present. Like in a way that you can feel when you when we worship corporately, you will often have tangible experience, right? You you, you might feel a, a, a tingle or a or a heat sensation or something. We do the same thing in healing prayer, you know, we have these manifestations that give us clues to the presence of God being actually present and active in doing things. But I don't want us to fall into the trap that we can only find that when we come into an atmosphere like this. I think we can find it there, 
And, and the truth of it is, it's one of the reasons God tells us to gather together, because maybe you've had a, a hard week, or maybe you've had what I would describe as a dry week. Maybe it's been harder for you to get to that place, harder to find Jesus. Come to the assembly. Get in the atmosphere. Be around it. Just Even if you don't, I'm not even so much concerned how much you participate. I mean, we want that because it's good for you. But I'm saying just being present, just showing up, just being in an atmosphere around other people who are tuned into God's presence, who are worshiping him, who acknowledge him as Lord, and who are listening to see what he has to say. I've heard this comment from multiple uh, ones of you at different points in time. I just really needed worship this week. And that's good. I'm not saying that's a bad thing. That's one of the reasons we gather. is so that whichever one of us are, are sort of on the low end of the stick can hopefully be lifted up by coming in. But what I'm telling you is our entire life should not be that way. What you can experience here in a group, the, the manifest presence of God that we find in intimate worship can be available to you 24-7. It can be available to you without a band or a tech team, which we are so grateful for, those who serve us and lead us into the throne room week after week after week. I think we're blessed with the quality of teams that we have that do that. But they are not a necessity for us on an individual level. And my encouragement to you, and I think the invitation of Jesus is, Jesus has set the table. Jesus has done all of the preparations. And so the only preparations that you have to do is come to the table. Right? We don't don't need anything else. We need a regular practice of coming to the kingdom table of Jesus and saying, Jesus, here I am. I'm hungry. I'm thirsty. What do you got? And I guarantee you, Just as the scripture would tell us, those who hunger and thirst for righteousness will be filled. The last thing that I want to draw out for you this morning, and we can go ahead and flip over to John 3, is that Jesus' vision is for a crowded table. He wants his house to be full. We're going to read just a a verse or two here. In John 3, verse 3, John said, Jesus said in the book of John, You are absolutely right. Take it from me, unless a person is born from above, meaning the new birth experience, it's not possible to see what I'm pointing to, to God's kingdom. Again, this is not something that we can figure out by our own intellect. And, I, and some of us are, are pretty smart. But it cannot be figured out by intellect. It cannot be reasoned to. It cannot be argued to. Unless you are born again, unless you come to Jesus and accept his invitation to a new birth experience, you will not be able to see and access the kingdom. But I want to emphasize to you again, thinking about this story of the dinner party, that Jesus' vision as he invites you is that he wants a crowded table. Now, 
You might hear that said, but Matthew, you said that he was, he was preparing and being precise. Why would the table be crowded? He, he would, and he knows all things. Wouldn't he set the right number of chairs and the right? I'm not talking about poor planning. I'm not talking about he set a table for eight and 12 showed up. I'm talking about fullness. I'm talking about he wants all to come to the table. He doesn't want to set a place for you and have you not show up. He has a table that's big enough for everyone. I, I, I thought about playing it for you this morning, but it's a little bit too long for this context. But there's a song. I can't listen to it without crying. So that's the other reason I'm not playing it. But there's a song, and it's not necessarily a religious song, but, but these themes run through it, and it's called Crowded Table. And I'm going to read just a couple of the lyrics to you. Because I think it so illustrates this picture of what Jesus is inviting us to. That it, his, it, the word tells us that in his house are many rooms. In other words, room for everyone. If it wasn't so, I would have told you. But I did, and it is. I have room for everyone. The chorus of this song says, I want a house with a crowded table. And a place by the fire for everyone. Let us take on the world while we're young and able and bring us back together when the day is done. Going down to the third verse, it says, The door is always open, your picture's on my wall. You hear that theme of, of relationship? Everyone's a little broken, and everyone belongs. I don't know each of your stories. I don't know where you came from in your journey. But I know the way that I lived my life before I intersected Jesus, and I did not feel like I belonged. I did not feel wanted. I did not feel worthy. I did not feel invited. But Jesus would say to you this morning, no matter where your journey has taken you, his door is open. Your picture is hanging on his wall. And you belong. Jesus' invitation to us this morning is to come to his table and dine. Now you notice, it's not an invitation to come and do. Right? The preparations have already been made. The table is set. There's plenty of food, and there's a chair for everyone. But we do have to respond. And I, I don't know if you've ever thought of it this way. But there's actually this aspect of the kingdom that we're always saying this, everyone's invited. There's room for everyone. Jesus wants all, and all of that is true. But there's another parallel reality that goes with that, that it is not easily taken a hold of. It is not easily taken. Now, I'm not talking about, oh, you know, some list of works or things you have to do to be saved. It is simple, but it is not easy. Do you understand that, that, that delineation there? It is simple in that there's nothing you have to do to earn it. There's nothing you have to do to deserve an invitation. But it's not easy because the invitation to come into the kingdom is come and dine, but it's also come and die. 
It's also saying, let go of everything that you thought was important. All of those excuses you thought you could make as to why this isn't for you, let them go. Come and die, not so that you can just lay in the grave and be dead. Come and die because dying to yourself is the only way to get the life that Jesus has, that he wants to live through you. Jesus said he was crucified and we were crucified with him. And it's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. But the only way to get that life is to die. 